This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. Ask the AMPs is where we try to address any and all maintenance questions that come our way. If you have a question, reach us at podcasts at aopa.org. That's podcasts at aopa.org. And if you like the show, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So it's the middle of winter, right? So it's supposed to be really cold and all your temps are supposed to be nice and low in your engine. Well, I've been fighting high oil temperature ever since I overhauled my engine and put it back together. We told you not to do that. I can't blame the mechanic because it's me. (laughs) So I tried everything else and I finally decided I'm going to pull the new Vernotherm and put the old Vernotherm back in because it worked fine. So I did that and the temperatures went through the roof. And when I measured both of them in the pot of boiling oil, the new Vernotherm opened up a ton and the old Vernotherm needed a little bit of geriatric help. So I promptly put the new Vernotherm that I thought wasn't working right back in again, and it worked perfectly. And I think what happened is I just had to reseat it in the area where it goes into the engine. And it's possible when I had the case overhauled that they didn't, I don't know, do they grind that seat so that it makes a perfect mating surface with a Vernotherm to a certain angle or something? I looked at the wear mark on the old and the new Vernotherm, and it wasn't engaging completely around the the cone. But I think putting it back in caused it to seat enough that it's not leaking and it's working better because it's like night and day. My oil temperatures are below 200 no matter what I'm doing, and I can actually close my cow flaps now. Wow. There, well, there's a, there's like a crush washer or something on yeah. the head of the Vernathum, right? right? So yeah, I wonder, it's at the base. Was it fully crushed down the first time? I it didn't. It, it was an aluminum washer. It didn't look like an oh. oil plug filler uh, washer, you know, where it's actually curled around and you, and you can see. see it crushed. So the washer just prevents leaks, but it wasn't anything that's uh, up at the top where the sealing surface is. No, no, but if... if the, the question was whether the Vernotherm was actually screwed all the way in as far as it can go. 
It was torqued all the way in. I had to get a, a huge non-aviation size wrench on it to get it out. Um, <laughs> That's an inch a proper in mechanic in. response. Yeah, I tried to bang on it, but that no, it, it, it <laughs> seemed screwed all the way in. And yeah, I, I want to I, I want to see that picture of Colleen with a big pipe wrench so that we. I could had to borrow a wrench. It. <laughs> it was so big, and then you know, getting in there was dicey. But I got really good at taking it out and putting it back in because I did it multiple <laughs> times. And luckily, I didn't. You you know, cause other failures like broken wires or uh, forgot to put things back together. But um, it's it's amazing. I, I fixed it. But it's one of those things where it doesn't make sense that I fixed it. So it's kind of bugging me, but I'll it's take un, it. Uns, unsatisfying. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that yeah. is very frustrating. Very frustrating. Yeah. But the Vernatherm is such a simple thing. It should just work as advertised. And I don't quite understand what, what went so, wrong there. You put it. You put them in boiling oil to test the opening and closing. Yeah. Uh, and was there a reason why you used oil as opposed to something actually, else? Actually, actually, I, I should caveat. I used water because that's uh-huh. what I had on my kitchen stove. But I, but the instructions say to use oil, and I think that's because you can get a higher boiling point. But frankly, it starts vernatherming at 185 degrees. Yeah. Well love- before boiling. I love doing stuff at home in the kitchen. I grew up, <laughs> I, I took a motorcycle apart and put it back together in the living room with dad. And uh, somehow mom thought that was okay. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, taking and the part home on the stove, that's great. Well, Col- Colleen, Colleen just used a verb that I have never heard before, vernatherming. <laughs> we need to look that up. Well, it was amazing. You know, on the flight, on the post-maintenance check flight where I was, where it actually worked properly, was flying and and I was taking, you know, departing the airport and I could see that oil temperature just marching up like really fast. And I thought, oh, here we go again. And it hit 190 and it put the brakes on. I could literally see the thing opening and sending the oil to the cooler. It was such a great feeling. And then it just inched up and it got to about 198 and it just stayed there like it was just supposed exactly to. where you want it. Yeah. Right. Where, where was it going to before? Oh, gosh, I hardly got out of the pattern, and it went to 210. It it was crazy. The old one didn't open very much, and so I threw it away. Good job. Okay, so let's get started. Our first guest is Gerald, who's having a flap with his flaps. Go ahead, Gerald. (laughs) Hi there, thanks. Um, I bought a, a Cessna 172, 1977, uh, about last August, and I bought it to complete my training, and uh, we had intermittent flap issues. Sometimes they would work, sometimes they wouldn't. I got kind of used to it, got real good at my no-flap landings, and took it into the mechanic. He found a loose ground, supposedly, and bam, all of a sudden the flaps worked. About last October, I took a little flight, and landed with my flaps, went inside, grabbed some breakfast, Came back out and the flaps didn't work on takeoff. So it went in again and they found a, let's see, he replaced a switch on the actual flap um, actuator and they worked for a little while and they quit working again. So I'm at a point now where they will not work when I take off, but when I go to land, they work. So on my run-up, no dice. It seems like when they're under some sort of a load, they decide to work. And then just last last month, 
uh, we extended the flaps and they fluctuate. If you set it to 10 degrees, <laughs> it'll pivot between five and 10. That's a weird feeling, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. So I just decided not to use them. Wow. Good practice. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's where we're at. It's in the mechanics today, actually. They are taking another look at it. So I'm hoping you guys can help me maybe guide my mechanic to an answer. We have to exercise the plane, huh? Well, exercise you know, the, the demons. That, that very last symptom that you may, mentioned where the flaps are oscillating when you set them to an intermediate position, that particular symptom is, there's only one thing that can cause that. And it's, so that, that one is really easy. The Cessna flap pre-select uh, has a, a, a gizmo that's, right behind the instrument panel, right behind the flap lever. When you move the handle, the flap handle, you're moving basically moving a cam. And that cam sits between a pair of microswitches. So if you push the flap lever down, it closes one microswitch, which is going to cause the call for the flaps to go down. And if you pull the handle back up, it's going to click the other microswitch to cause the flap to want to come up. And then the tricky part of it is that that, those two microswitches are mounted on a plate that is moved by the flap follow-up cable. So when the flaps actually move, it moves those pairs of, pair of microswitches. So the idea is that if where you set the cam with your flap lever doesn't match where the flaps actually are, they will move in the right direction until they are. They do match where where the flap lever actually is. If the flaps are oscillating, it means that those microswitches are misadjusted. They're, they're mechanically misadjusted. They're too close together. And, and so the, the flap will move down in, in order to open the, the down microswitch, but because those switches are, are mounted too close together, it will hit the, the opposite microswitch and move in the opposite direction, it will keep oscillating. It's a mechanical oscillator. So solving that problem simply is a matter of, of adjusting the position of those microswitches. And, and there's good guidance in the, in the maintenance manual on how to do that. Yeah, so your other problem is this, this, you said this is a 77. If it's a late model 77, it's possible that it's 24 volt is it a 12 or a 24 volt airplane it's 12 volt so the two switches in the wing one of which you had replaced only stop the flaps at their full travel full up or full down the two that mike was talking about on the cam only stop the flaps or only should stop the flaps in their partial travel 10 degrees 20 30 degrees whatever you have and when the flaps are in say the full up position the up limit switch is closed and it provides either power or ground. The, the down limit switch provides the opposite. So those switches are in action all the time. So if you don't get any movement, if you select flat travel, if you're in the full up position and you set flaps down and nothing happens, it could very well be the up limit switch is not adjusted, not engaged or wires loose or miswired, something like that. And vibrations, the engine operating or flight vibrations, it's not so much the stress of the flaps moving, but the shaking of the wing may be just enough to make that switch engage 
or to make that loose connection make a good connection or make a good connection a not good connection if it's a little bit loose. So it's, it's, it should be fairly easy to troubleshoot. Uh, it's gonna require a lot of, you know, putting your hands on the wire, seeing if they're there. It may even require use of a voltmeter, which most mechanics really hate because they don't like electrons and- You can't just, see them. You can't see they're them invisible. if you can't, that's right. If, they're, if you can't see it, it's not there. So yeah, but Mike is absolutely right. You have two problems. I always troubleshoot being an electronics guy. I pick the easiest problem first and attack it because about nine times out of 10, when you resolve that problem, you also find the second problem. They're often related. And the question is, which flap switch was actually replaced? Looking at his question in print, it doesn't suggest whether it was behind the panel or in the wing of the flap motor. And that might be where it needs to be adjusted. Yeah, there's four different switches in the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I believe he switched or they replaced the number 23, let's see, 18. The flaps down operating switch uh, behind the panel. Yeah. Uh, oh, well, that's why it's doing the oscillating. Because uh, they didn't test it right when they put the new switch in, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's two little screws that mount it. They just loosen it, just slide it away from the other one just a hair. That's at least a starting point. You know, the other, th- the other thing I always think about with these, with these Cessna free select flaps, Paul, is one, one, of the, one of the nice features of the system is that the wire harness that connects to those micro switches is constantly flexing up and down. And so it's very common to get one of those wires to break or some kind of hairline fracture or something. That's a, a problematic part of that system is that that wire bundle is constantly flexing every time the flaps go up and down. Yeah, and so, people tend to kick it with their knee when they're sitting in the co-pilot seat. And by definition, micro switches require very detailed um, motion. You just basically adjust um, their positioning so that they'll open at the right time. And they're, sometimes it's tough for big mechanic hands to get in there and do that. It's tight space. So. Colleen, have yours ever done this on the? I had to replace the flap follower cable. Which oh, that's you a, take the whole interior job. out. Yeah. yeah, and the worst part was reconnecting it behind the flap lever on the panel because of all those micro switches, and I didn't want to jostle anything or change anything. But those cables do end up sticking, and it'll it'll cause stuttering or sticking in the flaps. If the cable doesn't move, the flaps won't go up and down. So God, that's. Gosh. Gosh, Paul, I had to replace the flap follow-up cable in my Cessna 310. You probably remember that. Because <laughs> yeah, I, I think you paid for it, if I recall uh, yeah, correctly. Boy, there, there are some things, Gerald, that just never go away. <laughs> just never, ever go away. <laughs> That's great. So this, uh, this flap follow cable, um, mm-hmm. that doesn't have anything to do with this issue, you don't think? We don't think so. Because that would cause sticking, but you're, that stuttering that you've got, that oscillation back and forth, really does sound like it's bouncing between the two micro switches. All right. That's a fun question, though. Be glad it's not the cable. <laughs> so, 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 Paul, you're suggesting that the micro switches get adjusted to eliminate the oscillation first. Yes. And, and, and then see whether the other problem is still, right. is still happening. Yeah, one fix yeah. at a time. I think that's probably a good plan. 
So, so Gerald, you you can you can come back to us after that's done, and and we'll we'll, we'll work on the other problem if it still persists. All right, sounds great. I really appreciate your help. Thank you. Cool. Well, we're glad to help you. <laughs> I've listened to all the episodes. Thank you. It was a great question, Joe. We really appreciate it, and uh, good luck with that. Let us know how it goes. I will. Thank you. So our next caller is Jay, who has a uh, tailor craft with a kind of a unique issue. Jay, what's going on today? So, uh, well, I got a, a question for you about the, the inspection ring covers. First of all, I love your show, and thanks so much for letting me be on it. I'm really enjoying well, it. We're glad to have you. We enjoy it. So um, anyway, so um, yeah, I just finished my restoring my tailor craft in May. So, of course, in a few months, I'll be having my first annual, and one question has come up from two different mechanics. On each wing, I have 14 inspection panels, you know, the cutouts for them. There's no cutouts yet. It's just the inspection rings, you know, that are under the right. fabric and the paint and everything. And um, one mechanic said, well, when we do the, uh, you know, if, if I did the annual with him, when we do that, we're going to have to open all, uh, all those up because that's what they're there for. And then the second mechanic said, well, no, he feels like you could open them up at the um, the strut attached points and the aileron cranks, and then he feels like he could see the spar and everything else, you know, with his camera. And so that's sort of my question: Is there really any official guidance on this? You know, which which way could I go on this? Well, that's interesting. I haven't worked on a Taylor craft. Uh, Dad and I did a Super Cub many many years ago. I'm going to start with this, and, and we'll, we'll see how see where it goes. But when we did the Super Cub, the thing had probably been recovered five times before us, so there's no telling where the rings were supposed to be. We just kind of put rings everywhere, and then we we <laughs> we cut them open as we felt the need to see something. So I don't know on a Taylor Craft is there a specific? Do you know of a specific Taylor Craft drawing that says? here's where the rings go and here's where the ones are that should be open? Or did whoever did the recovering just put rings in places that they thought were good places to put them? Well, sort of a combination of both. So um, okay. I'm in the Taylorcraft forum. Oh, there you go. They had a, um, they had a drawing. It was just a, a PowerPoint drawing of where the inspection panels go. And essentially it's at the junction of all the drag wires and, sure. um, you know, the fuel valve and stuff like that. So I, you know, I use that as a go-by, and then I added a couple of extras that would let me get to the pitot tube connections easier. Mm-hmm. And if I ever decided to put wing lights in, I did one on each at the bottom of each wing tip for that. So, again, sort of a, a combination of information. Unfortunately, when I took the covering off it many years ago, I didn't even notice where any of those were. Oh, you should have saved it. <laughs> yeah, I wish I would have. Yeah, yeah that's what but, you usually uh, do. And, and then you would have had what the last person did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, but I went and recovered it. That's what I did. I used the the drawing from the, from the forum and did that. You know, on my Skybolt, there's a lot of rings that we put in when we recovered the upper wing, and I haven't opened them up yet. I did have to open some rings on um, the ailerons to tighten the aileron fittings because I found them starting to get loose. My philosophy is don't open them up unless you feel, unless you think it's a critical structure piece, like maybe where the the, the flying wires attach, where you feel like you need to inspect that each annual. But a lot of those inspection holes are there for access if you're going to replace something or take the wings off. 
on my Cessna, I just did the annual on my Cessna. And unlike other years, I did not open every inspection panel on the plane. I thought that was just crazy. I would end up spending a whole day opening everything up. And then I would, uh, most of the times when IAs did the inspection before me, they wouldn't even look in half the holes. A lot of those holes are there to get two arms in to replace something. And uh, this, the, a hole isn't giving you visibility of something. It's just giving you access where you can actually reach in and do something. So... I mean, you know best where you put your inspection rings, but I would think that it's just the critical things that you're, if you're uncomfortable flying because you haven't looked at a place where something's bolted together, like a bell crank or an attach point, then then maybe if you can't get a borescope in to look at it or a mirror and a flashlight, then maybe you should open that up. But I would think a lot of those are just for maintenance if you ever have to do maintenance in an area. Jay, Jay, I'm going to jump in here for a minute. Unlike Colleen and Paul, I have zero experience with anything covered with with fabric. But I know a lot about the regulations. So Paul and Colleen were talking about what you should do. But (laughs) let let, let me address the the question you asked, which is what you must do and and who gets to decide. When an IA does an annual inspection, he's required to use a checklist. He doesn't have to use a checklist that's in the maintenance manual. He can use any old checklist he desires. He can scribble a checklist on the back of an envelope, uh, you know, over breakfast that morning. So the IA gets to decide what he's, what he's going to inspect. There is something in the regulations called uh, Part 43, Appendix D, which kind of gives a generic list of the minimum things he's required to do. But it's very nonspecific because it's not, it's not, you know, it's, it's generic. It's not type specific. So it basically says, look at everything, but it doesn't say you have to open all of the inspection holes. I, you know, I kind of like this second IA who says, hey, I've got a borescope. I don't need to open all those holes. I can just stick a camera in and wiggle it around. I mean, that sounds to me like this guy is my kind of guy, which is let's, 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 Let's do what we have to do in the least invasive possible way. But it's up to the inspecting IA. The first IA says we got to open all the, all the holes. If you hire him to do the inspection, he gets to do what he thinks is necessary. If you hire IA2, he gets to do what he thinks is necessary. And, and so it's the inspector that gets to choose. But there's no specific guidance that tells him how many of these openings he has to open up and what kind of inspection procedure he's going to use. Is he going to stick an eyeball in there? Is he going to stick a camera in there? That's totally up to the inspector. So, you know, I think what you're doing, which is like to interview a couple of inspectors and see what they say and then pick the one that you like the best, that sounds like a really good procedure to me. Okay, okay. Well, that's a, yeah, I sort of like the second answer better for, for those reasons. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. But again, a lot of it was I didn't know, you know, what was required. And unfortunately, on you know, this plane was built in the mid-40s, so there isn't any kind of manual. Right. Now, it's, it's, it sounds like the first IA is, is, is date, dates from the mid-40s, too. <laughs> and, 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 the, and the second one actually knows a little bit about <laughs> modern technology, so... Oh, things are, <laughs> things are getting personal really quick. 
<laughs> well, anyway, okay. Well, I sure appreciate it. I, thanks for, for all that information. Jay, we appreciate the question. It's uh, it's always fun to discuss what one should do versus what one must do. That's yeah. good. That's good. Yeah. Well, I hadn't thought of it that way, really. So I sure appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks, enjoy Jay. It. Enjoy. Enjoy that telecraft. Yeah. Okay. I will. Bye-bye. All right, Bye. Bye-bye. Our next question comes from Bill, who's taking moisture to a whole new level in his engine. Go ahead, Bill. Hi. I'm in southeastern Connecticut, and and Mike knows where Groton, Connecticut is. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's been there for the AOPA fly-in yep. that we had a few years ago. Anyway, I've got a Cessna 182S, so it's got a Lycoming 540 in it, six-cylinder. And... I wanted to go to Florida for six weeks and get out of the cold. You know, the weather's starting to really turn rotten. So I was first thinking, well, gee, do I have to do that fancy pickling procedure that Lycoming is asking for? And to me, that's a messy, messy, messy thing. So instead, I have this uh, desiccant unit. It's the, it's the low-pressure dry air unit that uses those blue, blue beads and... You know, when they start turning pink, then you put it in the oven and heat it up again. Well, I get about two or three months out of that. But anyway, I've, I rigged it up so the dry air goes upside the, uh, the dry, the oil, you know, uh, what do you want to call that Breather thing? Tube? Oil yeah. tube. Mm-hmm. And then on the top of the oil filler neck, I've got like for 20 bucks a probe that is measuring temperature as well as percent humidity. So the theory is, if I pump dry air into that, and I know that the air in the crankcase is below the dew point, and I'll give you an example. Let's say the temperature of the air in a hangar is 59 degrees, and my little probe says 14% relative humidity. I can go on the Internet and I calculate out 9 degrees F for dew point. Now, I would think that's got to be awful dry air, and there's no way I'm going to get moisture inside that crankcase. So my question is, am I doing the right thing, or, or am I uh, loco? Am I crazy? <laughs> but I, I just don't see how a normal person like me goes away for six weeks, and you know, I'm supposed to do a pickling procedure that like Comey's recommending, I think it's crazy. We got to think of something outside the box. I did do one more thing. I added a, a double dose of CamGuard when I talked to Brandon Thompson. So, comments, guys. And I have a second question for Mike afterwards. So, so I take it you're doing a a, a research paper for a peer-reviewed journal. <laughs> all of this stuff. Oh, it's that. I- you, you 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 are overthinking it just a little bit, you know. But you, and about the crazy thing, you own an airplane. So don't even ask people if you're crazy. That's just, just a bad <laughs> starting point. It's just not, not good at all. So I don't know much about, I mean, I shouldn't say I don't know much about it. But one thing I would say, what you haven't addressed are the cylinders. So once you get the crankcase taken care of, you still need to do something about the bare steel exposed walls of the cylinders. So just to adjust that real quick before Colleen or Mike talk about your uh, almost said evaporator, but your dehydrator, 
you can take the bottom spark plugs out, spray a mist of corrosion X or something up into each cylinder, screw the spark plug back in, and that takes care of the cylinder as long as you don't turn the propeller after that. So but you do need to do something, not just the crankcase for the camshaft and the cam followers, but don't forget the cylinders as well. Okay. Per personally, for, for, for something that's only six weeks long in the winter, uh, the, the, the winter is much better than the summer because, because the air is a lot drier. You know, I, I think the double dose of cam guard and the dehumidifier is more than you need. You do not have to go any further than that and cons consider doing a, a pickling procedure. You know, if the, if, if the, if the airplane was going to be down for six months, I would say it would be worth doing the pickling. But the, the dehumidifier is going gonna, is gonna to do a real good job of protecting the, the cam and lifters and all of that stuff. And the cam guard's going to do a pretty decent job of protecting the, the cylinder as well as the cam. And it's a, it's a relatively brief period of time. And uh, I mean, I, I, I don't think you mentioned it, but it's pretty obvious that the airplane is in a hangar because that's where you have to plug in your dehumidifier. So It's a pretty nice hangar from what I you, remember. You, you've, you've got all that stuff going for you. Um, I, I understand that Groton is a, is, a, is a high corrosion risk environment being right on saltwater there. But I think what you're doing is, is, is plenty. I don't think you have to go further than that. Okay, super. I appreciate that, guys. You know, I thought I was getting crazy, but I thought that's a lot better than trying to put argon inside the crankcase. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and by the way, I, if, if, when we're talking about dehumidifiers, there, there's a unit called a Black Max that is it's about $500. So it's a little bit more than the desiccant type. But instead of using desiccant crystals, it basically is a refrigerating unit that dehumidifies the air the same way a room de dehumidifier works. And the bad part about it is it's, it's a little more expensive. The good part about it is it doesn't have any consumables. So it'll, it'll, it'll pump dry air into the engine forever. All you need to do is put electrons into it. Awesome. That's awesome. And Bill, do you have your battery on some kind of battery conditioner or minder while you're gone? Yeah, I've, I've got it on the battery minder. So oh, yeah. It's keeping the yep. voltage up, and I really think that was a good move also. The yeah, battery. I, I take it up to Springfield area, talk to Tom Trudeau. I said, the battery is, you've gotten five years out of that plus. Yep. Yeah, you know, the, the other thing you could do is, is, is on the way to Florida, you could just drop off the airplane at Paul's shop, and he'll fly it for you while you're gone. <laughs> that could be arranged. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Bill, these are great questions. Uh, we really appreciate. I hope your uh, trip down south is good, and I hope you enjoy that warm weather. Thanks. Thank you very much. See you guys. See you, Bill. Bye-bye. Okay. So our next question is from Peter, who uh, has a question about overhaul or not to overhaul a uh, propeller and propeller governor. Hey, Peter, good to see you. Uh, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed the podcast. In fact, I look forward to every month to the the new one coming up. Wow! Um, so, awesome. thank you. So I have a uh, Hartzell uh, two blade composite propeller uh, on my DA forty, and the uh, original equipment is a Woodward Governor. The prop was installed in two thousand and twelve, and it's about had about six hundred hours on it. And my question: uh, Hartzell has uh, obviously overhaul recommendations, which I understand are not 
compulsory. And I'm wondering whether under what circumstances should I have the uh, propeller overhauled if ever? Should, and if I'm overhauling it on condition, what, what represents condition other than what I can inspect on the blades? And same questions apply to the governor. Uh, so since I introduced you, I'll, I'll get started because anytime you ask overhaul, time between overhaul kind of questions, we just have a field day. But the, uh, there are a couple things to, to keep in mind. The, the propeller is basically sealed, so it doesn't really have access to the outside air, but it, it has some. The main concern that you have is you, you can inspect the externals, whether you have damage, physical damage, rust or corrosion on the outside, but you can't see the inside. At 600 hours, it definitely isn't going to have wear and tear because they're recommending 2,400 hours for a prop overhaul. So you wouldn't want to tear it down uh, for an overhaul due to wear and tear. The other option uh, for damage would be corrosion. So you have gone a long time between manufacturer and now, not much flight time, but a lot of calendar time. So your concern would be something related to just calendar age, corrosion, seals that have gotten hard, that sort of thing. So an overhaul requires all sorts of mandatory parts replacement. If you use the word overhaul, that triggers a certain whole series of events. But you can ask your propeller shop to do an IRAN, where they just open it up and inspect, or you might even call it a reseal, where they automatically replace all the seals because they're old, they're getting hard. And that's substantially less expensive than an overhaul. And I think the time, the decision about when to do that is mostly your decision. Uh, well, no, it isn't mostly. It's totally your decision. But, but at what point do you become uncomfortable? You're, where are you located? Where's the plane based? Uh, Van Nuys Airport. Oh, boy. So, you know, it, I, I don't know. It's not like Pensacola, Florida, but there is some corrosion going on there. Obviously, it, it has a lot to do with with what you think the corrosion risk is. If the airplane's hangered, that, that helps. If it flies a lot, that helps. Uh, I, just a couple of, I want to point out a couple of things. Uh, Paul ta- talked about having the prop sent to the prop shop and, and requesting a, a reseal repair as opposed to an overhaul. And that, that's something that I have recommended a lot because basically what a reseal repair is, is it's an overhaul of the hub, but leave the blades alone. And since you can inspect the blades and you know that they're fine, that, that seems like a very plausible thing to do. Unfortunately, in, in our highly the litigious nature of, of, of aviation, there are some prop shops that will refuse to do anything other than an overhaul if, if you send them the prop and it's over TBO, just because they, they don't want to take the liability. Don't just send off the prop and ask for a resale repair, you need to talk to the prop shop first and say, I've got this prop, here's the time on it, I'd like you to do a resale repair, would you be willing to do that? Uh, the other thing I'd like to sort of point out is, I'm, for, very, for many, many years, decades, I, I have been a massive consumer of NTSB accident reports. I read a big summary of NTSB uh, aviation accident reports every single month. And I've been doing this for a very long time. And I cannot think of a single 
general aviation, a piston GA accident that was caused by a propeller failure. Not one. I know of some turbine ones where they they had beta props and, and something went wrong with that mechanism, which is a lot more complicated than the props that we use on on, on pistons. I know of one case of an experimental aircraft where the prop departed the engine, not for any not for any fault of the prop, by the way. It was just who would some, that be? <laughs> it 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 was uh, it was James Inhofe, our our esteemed senator from Oklahoma, in a, as a matter of fact, who had a prop depart his experimental aircraft, and who 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 made an uh, amazingly an uneventful forced landing, <laughs> but. Uh, I, I just literally, props never cause accidents, almost never. So I wouldn't be particularly nervous about it. If the prop is, is, is regulating okay, and if it's not throwing grease or oil on your windshield, if it were me, I would just keep on trucking. And as far as the governor is concerned, as, as long as the governor is governing properly, I, I would just leave it alone. And again, that's 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 my own. I have to agree with the governor thing. I actually I have uh, two Woodward governors on both my aircraft, and uh, the Cardinal one went for almost three thousand hours, and we just sent it in for overhaul because the engine was being overhauled, and it seemed like the thing to do. But I, it 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 will tell you. It's one of those things that'll start to tell you if it's going bad, and I don't think it has very many mechanisms for wear or going bad. The one that I had overhauled in the Skybolt, actually, when I got it back, it didn't work properly. And I had to do a couple back and forths. And I wished I'd never pulled it. You know, I wished I'd just left it alone because it was perfect as is. And and we also have a, a few stories of, of people who pulled prop governors for, for overhaul just because they wanted to. Oh, and yeah. when the prop governor went back on, it basically wrecked the engine. Because uh, they didn't uh, put the plate in? Uh, yeah, no. because yeah. because the spline shaft didn't line up didn't right, line up. And, oh, it, and it, oh. And, and it wound pushes. up resulting the, the 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 decision to overhaul the governor wound up resulting in an engine teardown, which is always a shame. So you know, you 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 get involved in in things like that, and it just makes you kind of spring loaded to if it if it ain't broke, don't fix it, just leave it alone. And I'm a big believer in that for the most part. Now, I, I used to let my prop go for a long time, and I agree a, a prop that hasn't been overhauled or I ran in a while is not going to cause an accident. But I did find that if I let it go too long, invariably it would go to the shop and they'd say, oh, we have so much corrosion in here, you have to throw it out and get a new hub or something like that. So I think I've settled into maybe a drumbeat of every five or six years, I just send it in for a reseal unless it's really flinging oil and then I'll send it sooner. And that seems to be able to maintain the components in good enough shape to be reused. Mike, I need to remind you, my husband's prop came off at Reno. So there's two experimentals right there. (laughs) I hear about it it every day. But it wasn't the prop's fault. That's the point. No, it was the engine's fault. (laughs) Overhauling the prop more often would not have helped. It it had just come out of the overhaul shop. It was a beautiful prop as it hit the ground. (laughs) As it spun like a top all the way down. Peter, airplane, thanks for the call. The airplane keeps flying. It keeps flying, yeah. 600 horsepower, that, that's totally normal. It's just, it's just a little lap CG after the prop comes up. <laughs> yeah, big time. All right, thank you all. Yeah. Yep, thank thanks, you, Peter. Peter. We appreciate thanks, the call. Peter. 
Okay, so next up is Kevin, who's uh, asking a question about torquing his cylinders. What you got, Kevin? Hi, thank you very much for taking your time today. Um, I have a 66 Cessna 182, and I live in Phoenix, and I have about 1,200 hours on a rebuilt engine. And the number one cylinder has always ran hot, and after about five years of varying compression changes and Marvel Mystery Oil and a few other things, I finally pulled it and uh, basically just re-ringed it and put it back on. And uh, the compression on it now is up in the 70s, which is fine. My question, however, was after I torqued all of my studs and through bolts for the number one cylinder, which is closest to the firewall on the 0470, the reading I did afterwards, not in any engine manual, but just out in the uh, web, stated that people used oil, 50-weight oil on the studs and the through bolts before they torqued them. I did not do that. Now, oh, I, yep. that's my question. Now, I've got 43 hours on it since I did that. And I went back through the engine manual and nothing says to lubricate the studs or the through bolts. But it, everybody it, out in the field... It does. Yeah, it's yeah. actually specified... Uh, on does? a continental, yes, it's it's in there. Yeah, absolutely, and it's I very, very, section it's very twelve. Yeah, it's very, very important that that those all of those fasteners be torqued wet. Now, um, Continental recommends using fifty weight oil to lubricate them. And by the way, you need to slather them with oil. Don't just use a little bit. 50-weight oil is not a very good choice, and Continental's guidance was written back in the Jurassic era. That's probably all they had. Lycoming has a similar recommendation, but they recommend using a, a 90 to 10 mixture of 50-weight oil and STP, which I think you have to buy from Andy Granatelli. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's hard and, to find and, these days. And that's actually a little bit better as a a thread lube for torquing. But I recently found the ultimate stuff for this. And it's something called, and you can, you can Google it. You, you can find it easily. It's called Ultra Torque. And it comes from an outfit called ARP, which stands for Automotive Racing Products. And it's, um, it's a special, specially designed thread lubricant specifically for wet torquing these critical fasteners. And I was put onto it by a guy that does a lot of engine work for, for NASCAR and, and uh, uh, Formula One and Indy 500 cars and stuff like that, where, the, where, where this stuff is like super, super important. But at any rate, Ultra Torque is, is, a, is a really good product for it. But if, if you torque those fasteners dry, that could be a, a real problem of not getting enough preload uh, because... The purpose of torquing the fasteners is to is to put preload on 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 them and to basically stretch them a little bit. And how much you stretch them is very critical to the integrity of the joint. But when you torque a, a, a nut, a big part of the torque that your torque wrench is applying does not go to stretching the fasteners. It goes to overcoming the friction of turning the nut at both the friction of the threads of the nut against the threads of the, the stud or the through bolt 
and also the friction of the nut face against the cylinder base that it's that it's trying to hold down. And so to get the rated amount of preload on those fasteners, you've got to minimize the amount of frictional losses of tightening that nut. And, and that's done by slathering the fastener with, with lubricant. And again, I would, I would recommend considering using this ultra torque stuff, but at the very least, you should be using um, uh, engine oil, which isn't a very good thread lube, or engine oil plus STP, which is a little bit better, or this ultra torque, which is probably really good. But the whole idea is to get as much of the torque that you're applying with the torque wrench translated into preload on the fastener and losing as little of it as possible uh, to, uh, to to friction. Would it be advisable to retorque them then? Loosen each one at a time and retorque it? If if you torque them dry, I would think it would be absolutely advisable to do that. I, you may I think, find them I, loose, I, even. I, I, I think that the 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 likelihood of of having inadequate preload, which will ultimately cause the uh, the fastener to fail, is sufficiently great that I think it it would be advisable to do exactly what you said to remove each nut. And oh, by the way, I don't know. What, whether when you reinstalled the cylinder, you reused the nuts or whether you put new ones on, but you should not reuse those nuts. Yeah, I was going so to say that as well. We always I, I would, I would all recommend the taking them off, uh, putting putting a, a good thread lube on there, like this ultra torque stuff, uh, lots of it. And uh, it, it should be messy. If you're doing the job right, it ought to be messy. <laughs> and, and then, and then, like barbecue. Uh, put, putting new nuts on there and torquing them to spec. New nuts as well. Okay. Yeah, definitely. And also uh, Continental, years ago, uh, changing cylinders was such a, a thing. They actually produced one of the very few training videos that they ever did. One was for changing cylinders and the other one was for doing engine fuel system setups on uh, injected aircraft. And they include, uh, hopefully you found this in the manual. I'm not sure which manual you're using for doing the cylinder change. But on the through studs, they want you to torque from both sides of the stud. So on your number one cylinder, you're going to be torquing the through studs on the number two cylinder side as well. Right. So it's a two-man job. It's a two-man job. Yeah. And and Paul's right. Uh, there There is a, a video that Continental did on cylinder installation it frankly makes it look easier than it really is because the video was made installing a cylinder on an engine that's sitting up on an engine yeah. stand where it's really easy to get to as yeah. opposed to being in an airplane where everything's hard to get to. But yeah. with baffling but, and induction tubes. That's how warranty numbers are come up with I, as I, well. I wonder, I wonder if that video is still available because I remember when I looked at it, it was on like VHS or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, had it, we had it on VHS and it finally got, I mean, we didn't, watch it that many times, but it won't play anymore. So it, it eventually it, got thrown out. But is it on YouTube, you suppose? <laughs> Ooh, that's I you know, I've not looked. Everything would be on really YouTube. be really nice if somebody put that old thing on YouTube with with the very last VHS machine <laughs> that right. exists on the that's planet. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well it sounds like we might have saved your engine there, Kevin. It sounds like it was a pretty critical uh, mistake, but can be easily corrected now that you know. But by the way, while while we're talking about cylinder replacement procedures, I think it might be worth bringing up, although it's slightly off the track, 
that when you put a cylinder on an engine, it's super critical that there be nothing on the, those two sur mating surfaces, that they have to be perfectly clean and free of any anything. I, I, I was involved in a, uh, in a lawsuit involving a, a bonanza that crashed and very seriously injured the pilot that was caused by a well-meaning mechanic who put a little sealant on the on the cylinder base o-ring in order to help make sure that the cylinder wouldn't leak after it was put in and when the cylinder was torqued down that sealant extruded in between the two surfaces and resulted ultimately in in the cylinder separating itself from the engine in flight and uh the, the pilot made a, a, a forced landing in a vineyard, unfortunately not oriented in the direction of the, of the vines and uh, hurt himself real bad. So it's, it's really important not to use any sort of sealant and any, anything other than, than engine oil um, in, in reassembling the. Or, or your product, Mike. Oh yeah. But, but, but <laughs> not, not, nothing, Nothing like sealant, paint, primer, anything like that. It's got to be very clean metal-to-metal -metal contact. Because if there's anything in there, uh, you, you'll torque down the, the fasteners, and then whatever ever film is in there will, will, uh, will wind up uh, wearing away and relieving some of the preload on the fasteners, and, and that's what causes them to fail. I understand. Yeah, so I don't think do 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 retorque do retorque all those those uh, hold down fasteners with a good prelude and with new new nuts, please. I think I will go buy some nuts and go to go to town. <laughs> good job. It's a great question. I, I'm sure a lot of people are listening and thanking you, Kevin, for bringing this up. It's uh, it's amazing how simple it is to replace a cylinder, but at the same time, there's a couple gotchas there. Yeah, how many ways there are to screw it up? Yeah. <laughs> Let me Thank you for your time. Thanks for your question. Appreciate it. Okay. Bye-bye. 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 Thanks, Kevin. Okay. Well, that's a wrap. We know a lot more about maintenance than podcasting, so we'd love to hear from you. Please give us your ideas on what you want to hear next time. Send your questions and comments to podcasts at aopa.org. Fly safely and have fun, and we'll see you next time. See ya. Bye, everybody. Bye.